Today is April 11th, 2021. Welcome to Common Ground. The sermon series we are in is called Stories of Resurrection. This sermon is called Thomas and Tending to Wounds, and the speaker is Chris Romine. Enjoy! It was the first day of the week. That evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As God sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's misdeeds, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the 12, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, the disciples were again in a house and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied, do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in the scroll. But these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's son, and that believing you will have life in his name. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Isabel, thank you for for offering to read that. Uh, uh, Pray with me real quick. God, may we truly have the peace. May we hear, peace be with you, child. May we hear it again. And maybe may we hear it one more time. Just so that it gets into our bones. That with the God of all creation, that we may have peace. In your wonderful creation the handiwork that we celebrate. And it's in Jesus's name and the spirit that has equipped Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs> I, <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh that, uh, that I know someone whose pet peeve is um, someone else being a little bit too close to them because they don't like to get breathed on. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, I didn't expect to lose it at that point, but just thinking of a resurrected Jesus, like we have no idea if his breath was any good at that moment. You know, I just walked out of tomb, uh, and I doubt the first thing that the spirit did was hand him, you know, a, a mint. Uh, so I don't know if I'd want Jesus, uh, all up in my face, breathing on, <laughs> breathing on me. That's right, Paul and Mary, after three days of no brushing, 
I also lost it when you wrote, Nisha, this is the old school version of if you didn't take a picture, it didn't happen. <laughs> Just, oh, man, we got jokes today. Man, the pet peeve Alter really set us up. I like it. Oh, okay, let me try to gather my thoughts and pull my, <laughs> pull my sermon up. <sighs> so last week was Easter. And with Easter... Uh, I had a lot to say, um, mainly because we're a new community and it's our second Easter that we spent together. And it's the second one that we've been digital. And it's just a weird, strange moment that we find ourselves in where we're uh, isolated from one another. Um, and, uh, and yet the sermon, uh, what I was trying to present and what's important, all the more important since we find ourselves in um, isolation right now, the sermon was centered on uh, the the sort of dismantling, or at minimum, us interrogating the, uh, the 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 typical Easter sermon that we've heard, which is Jesus conquered death, and Jesus won, and Jesus defeated the fill in the blank, um, and this is why we should celebrate Jesus. This is why we are right. Right. Like, finally, we proved ourselves because now Jesus is resurrected. And so actually, everybody who doesn't know Jesus, like they're all in the wrong. Um, this sort of madness, um, I don't know, builds solidarity with each other um, or with someone who says, I'm not much compelled with that story. I don't know that I believe it. Um, and so the problem of the Easter message, as maybe it's been articulated to us, is the fact that um, that we are told constantly that we've won, that uh, this always sounds good to the human ear, at least it sounds good to mine, that we were on the right side of history, that I was on the winning team, um, that there was an enemy and that they were vanquished and that I ended up right. Um, this is at least the first form of Jesus that I was introduced to. Um, in fact, I'm not going to lie, and, and you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's across the board for all of us. Um, that was a Jesus that was attractive to me. Like, that's a Jesus that I really wanted. I wanted a Jesus that could prove all the haters wrong. I wanted a Jesus that could flex. I wanted a Jesus that would tell me I'm right, and anyone who had anything negative to say about me was somehow on the opposite and the wrong side of a battle. And boy, would they find out at the end of this life how right I was and how wrong they were and how, you know, like th there's a, I'm also an eight on the Enneagram, y'all. So like this stuff is compelling early on to me. Please work with my trauma. Uh, but yeah, Janae, the militarization of Jesus, exactly right. That's exactly right. And as I preached last Sunday, in fact, that one line is basically the sermon, the militarization of Jesus. As I preached last Sunday, I said, if that was, friends, Jesus's goal, he would not have walked the path to meet Mary, and he would not have condescended to the point to show up in a locked upper room where his folks were terrified and had abandoned him a few days earlier. Jesus would have walked his resurrected, you know what? right down to Pilate's office and just flexed all over Rome and the officials and the mob and all who were complicit in the death of Jesus. Jesus would have stood at the seats of power to let them know that he in fact was right, that they are in fact on the wrong side of history, that they have the wrong narrative, so on and so on and so forth. While I still, and I said last week, still um, um, am captivated 
and remain in the belief of the literal resurrection of Jesus, Jesus who I remain in the belief um, that he was the embodiment and incarnation of a God unnamed and unknown who created all things, um, who or what or which, I should say, created all things. Uh, I realize that we are not a place where everyone shares that view. And that is actually encouraged, is not only encouraged, but it's celebrated that we sit in a space where I hope that y'all don't see me as pastor proclaiming theology, but just as someone named Chris who's saying, this is, so, this is the way I believe it, but what do you believe, friend? Uh, how, are we, how are we together dismantling things that maybe we didn't put a lot of thought behind? Because I, I need to do that work too, and I am doing that work. And y'all are watching me doing that work, and I'm watching you doing that work. And I believe that that is what makes a good community. And so I invited us out of the conquering model, um, the Jesus, uh, the general, uh, Jesus on the opposite side, as Chantilly talked about it in Palm Sunday, Jesus on the opposite procession of Pilate and the Roman, uh, the Roman guard coming into Jerusalem with pomp and fanfare and just glistening, you know, like just looking terrifying to a peasant community in the middle of Judea showing up with all sorts of garb, and they are flexing power. And on the other side, as Chantilly showed us, was Jesus sitting on a borrowed donkey, weeping as he entered a city, knowing that those who might celebrate him in that moment and lay down their garments and lay down palms were the same folks that would show up a couple days later, quite fickle, a fickle that I can relate to, um, a fickle that is present in me, nevertheless, a qu quite fickle to yell crucify just a few days later. And so who is this Jesus? What is the compelling Jesus, to me at least, since I'm the one um, giving the meditation today, uh, what is this new Jesus to me? How have I needed to deconstruct and decolonize the models that I'm used to of wanting to be in the right empire? that protects me from others um, and builds boundaries between me and others and has a lot of force behind it so that others can't get in the way of what I have claimed to be the good life. How am I deconstructing from this empire model? Um, and in such uh, a process, how is a new form of Jesus emerging to me? Well, I'll say this friends, uh, the conquering model worked for like a, couple years, maybe two years, when I shut my brain off for, for a while and just gave in to the uniformity of a church that calls for uniformity in both its culture and its language and its themes and its theology, and et cetera, et cetera, its, its practices. That form of church calls for uniformity. So I was like, okay, I guess this is like what I do to fit in. And this is who Jesus is. And I'm not also game because I come here with a whole bunch of trauma. And so I need a God who's going to win. And I got a whole bunch of wounds that I want this God to take away. And this is the place that's let me know that this God has taken it away. Well, in my own journey, uh, not too unlike uh, perhaps someone like Paul Moon's journey, I just started reading the Bible, um, go figure, and started seeing things that didn't really comport with the message that I was being told. In particular, why are we talking about a conquering Jesus that flexes on the world when Jesus didn't do anything like that in the resurrection? 
And every single gospel account is like Jesus gets resurrected and then boom, gospel account uh, like ends. And then we move on to what? What exactly are we moving on to? Uh, Friends, I invite you to just go to, if you're a Bible thumping, like I take the Bible very seriously. It's guiding my, it it, it guides the way that I approach these sermons uh, and I interrogate it. And so from one Bible lover and for one person who thinks the word speaks to us to another, if you're that way, I, I invite you to go to your Bibles and just read the last two chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's not a lot there that Jesus gives us to do after Jesus gets resurrected. Um, this is why we've made a God out of St. Paul. Um, this is why, this is why we've made a God of, I, I mean, all I need to basically say as someone in my position, luckily not here at common ground, um, but please check me if I, if I ever pull this nonsense is, uh, well, Jesus would blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, if we're talking about it based on what the Bible says before Jesus was crucified and resurrected, then sure. If we're going back to the tape, then sure. Maybe that is what Jesus did. But if I'm claiming anything, if I extrapolate beyond that, I think we'd be remiss um, to name that Jesus clearly would do X, Y, Z if after the resurrection, we have not much intel, friends. We have not much intel. Beyond that, and here's the point of the message today, it's the most ordinary resurrection ever. Of all the resurrections that I know of like stories, novels, movies, any time that something comes back to life, That something never humbly makes its way back to the group of friends that denied it and just lets them know that they're safe and cool to be there um, and shows their wounds. No, that thing that comes back in the resurrection, including what we think of as the Antichrist, comes back with a vengeance, my friend, a vengeance. And maybe the stories that we tell about Jesus say more about how we would come back from resurrection uh, and how we'd want God to come back from resurrection than how actually, when we read the Bible, Jesus returned. So while I affirm the resurrection, uh, while I affirm the resurrection, just my personal theology and what I'm sussing out, um, I don't affirm what we think the resurrection means. Um, And here's why. Um, Because as Chantilly talked about two weeks ago at Palm Sunday, She talked about the sectioning off of the Bible. Uh, At some point when we start to open up like late fall, early, uh, sorry, late summer, early uh, fall, we'll start having some classes and some small groups to talk about the Bible since the Bible seems to be the linchpin for a lot of trauma bonds and toxic theology and deadly ideas that exclude, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to interrogate the Bible and and we'll have that conversation then. I'll just drop a little thing in right here. But um, when we section off the Bible and call stories like this Doubting Thomas, and then we write a section about what section of this story is, then we all obviously have a preconceived notion about what this story is because we were just told this is the section where we found a Doubting Thomas, right? I learned once I went to seminary, since I wasn't really raised in the faith, that Doubting Thomas is kind of like a pejorative, playful, albeit, that people throw around when one Christian doesn't believe in something that, not, that they're supposed to. So another Christian's like, oh, doubting Thomas, right? Uh, and so Thomas is lifted up as an example of someone not to be. Um, someone to maybe steer clear of in practice, because who of us doubts? Who of us has questions? 
so on and so on and so forth. So yes, Camille, the scientist, that's right. So here's the fun thing about Thomas. Uh, as I read this resurrection story, um, Jesus doesn't scold Thomas for not believing. Um, Thomas, if you can imagine, I mean, I, I, I kid you not, somatically, I, I have chills in my body right now just imagining trying to place myself in a moment when I saw a resurrected body and it showed up to me. I would be my entire idea of life, and I suspect yours too, sibling, would be reoriented. And every question that you could ever have would be on the table at that point. Because what we absolutely scientifically know is that none of us have seen a resurrected body ever. And so we have no capacity to understand what that would mean for life, for death, for healing, for eternity, for a community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What we have right now is rugged faith at most. And the most that we can do with that faith is say, this is something that I'm holding true to. But most often what churches do is they beat others over the head with that sure faith. And they encourage things like this is just absolute and this is just orthodox and this is just what you need to believe. And what that does is it mutes the experience of people who are saying, I'm uncertain that this is applicable to me or that I have the exact same take as you, pastor or community group or whatever, about what the Bible is saying here. And suddenly we have complete uniformity in the name of conquering life and death, and we have absolutely no wrestling. You want to know what that does to a human being, friends? Well, I'll tell you. What that does to a human being is it takes the life and death experience and it makes it makes the miracle of resurrection the totality of our conversation, which means we don't need to react that much when someone's excluded from a church, when folks remain unhoused, when we claim to be colorblind. When the church preaches and prays for a thing like America, when we affirm an economic system that keeps people hungry, when health care, which is absolutely needed in our modern day, is not considered a universal right, it takes all of these felt needs that are happening right now and it asks us to just punt them to our deathbed because the moment that moment is finished, we wake up and everything's all good. And friends, that is not a message that's going to do any of us good. I have not been able to read the chat to the right of me the whole time, but I've seen like 10 different times, trauma bond, trauma bond, trauma <laughs> Y'all are talking about exactly what it is. Let's speak plainly about what faith becomes if we don't sit in the now and we only punt things to the miracle of resurrection. It becomes completely dead in the now, it becomes completely detached from felt needs. It reorients our community often to not wonder who is here and what we're all thinking, but where we're all trying to drag ourselves to, which is death and then resurrection. And this is why something like this, now I just went off text. It's okay, I'm only gonna go off text for a second. I'll return to the sermon. This is why something like a mission trip is so horrific 
which I've been on, by the way, so no shame, right? But it co-ops us into believing that our primary goal in life is to, as the richest nation on earth, to accumulate the wealth that we have in our network and then mail ourselves somewhere else to do a week's worth of felt need caring so that those people's uh, souls can be saved and we can wear a t-shirt about that mission trip and then come back with a whole bunch of pictures and feel like we did our part. That form of Christianity is only trading in, and I say this literally, it's only trading in death. It's only trading in the waiting for us to die spaces and how we fix ourselves in between now and then. For this book is, or for this sermon, it's important to name my sources. That's something that I'm going to work on more often. I actually encourage y'all when I don't name my sources to ask me because I rely on a number of sources and they deserve credit. And so for this, I'm reading, uh, for this, I read a book called uh, Resurrecting Wounds um, by a theologian named Shelley Rambo. And here is a quote that she has um, in a section called Sacred Bandages. Christian accounts of resurrection often include visions of healing and newness, visions of light overcoming the darkness. Visually, it is not difficult to see how these ideas of resurrection function. They can actually block healing from taking place because such theologies promise resurrection as a miracle cure for the wounds of our history. But in doing this, they can cover over the surface without tending to the wounds beneath the surface. They are sacred bandages on untended wounds. You tracking with me? What Shelley is saying, what Shelley Rambo is saying is when we only focus on the resurrection, we lose our sense of what is needed now. And if Jesus didn't care about what was needed now, if Jesus didn't care about being embedded in a community that had diversity in its thoughts, remember, Mary found Jesus first. I don't think that's a mistake, friends. And as we deal 2,000 years later in a culture that continues to not believe women, I, I, I all the more affirm that that is not a mistake. I don't think that's an accident. That's not how you tell a really good story of conquering. You don't go to the woman in 2000 years ago, uh, uh, Pater Familia, uh, Rome, you go to Pilate, as I said, but Jesus showed to Mary and Jesus also told Mary to be careful with his body because it was in a not yet space. It was betwixt and between, it was sitting liminally between death and life. Jesus was surely alive, but was surely dead and was surely resurrected. And Jesus came with wounds. And so remember, Jesus showed to Mary. What did Mary do? Mary ran back to all the men, all the zealots who were ready to fight a couple of days later. Now they're locked in a room terrified. And Jesus shows up to them. And now they're like, okay, I think I get it, right? They're probably completely shocked at what now they have to renegotiate about their understanding of life. But still we have Thomas who has yet to believe because Thomas wasn't there. And still we have the creator of universe coming to Thomas and saying, I'm here, see me. And Thomas saw and Thomas believed. And what the typical, perhaps we've heard it, um, 
the typical articulation of this story is, is that this was a sort of dunk, like Jesus was dunking on Thomas and flexing on Thomas and then indicating to the rest of us what we should be doing, because Thomas would be the last one to really deal with Jesus. And so the rest of us are better because we believe full stop, period, and we don't need no Thomas experience, right? Friends, I'm not compelled by this telling of this story whatsoever, because number one, I wrestle a lot with who Jesus is and where Jesus is. I just wrestle with it. I'm uncertain. And I bring myself, I bring those doubts, I bring those questions um, to an altar of, uh, of radical inclusion and hospitality. And y'all welcome me there and say, eat with us, feast with us, have gra- the same grace that's available to me is available to you, come and eat. And so far be it from anyone here in this community to not say the same thing to the rest of our siblings. We're all working through what we don't know what we thought we knew, which is getting renegotiated, and how we're all decolonizing, deconstructing, unbecoming, pulling the sweater string, all the things. We are constantly a community in flux. And I don't know that that's unique to the human experience, because I bet if I ask every one of y'all, you're betwixt and between a certain identity, you're betwixt and between a certain love and affirmation of self, you're betwixt and between a certain understanding of the space you take up in the world, et cetera. We're all emerging. We're all in process. And so was Thomas. <laughs> so was Thomas. So were all of us wondering where Jesus was. And that's okay. And so I think the main point of this story is this. Um, Twofold, and then we'll wrap up. Two points. First, it says that Jesus breathed on them. Uh, some some wonder if this meant Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit um, on the disciples that day in the upper room, right? So, like this was the first sort of rec- receiving of the Holy Spirit, and then the primary receiving came at the day of Pentecost. But actually, some of the people that were there at the day of the Pentecost that received the Holy Spirit. We're there this day in the upper room, which tells a lot of biblical commentators that it was actually two different types of breathing, two different forms of God breathing on humanity. And actually, when we go deeply, not the English, of course, because the Bible, hey, newsflash, the Bible wasn't written in English um, 10 minutes ago. Uh, a lot of words that are in the Bible right now were never in the word in the Bible even 50 years ago, including the word homosexual. So that'll, we'll save that for a different time. But women... Um, uh, a, a, a commentator, well, it's actually Dr. Gaffney and another one, um, posit that the breathing that Jesus did in this room was literally the breath of life that God gave to the first humans in the fable of Genesis 2. That literally without this breath, we did not have life and sustenance. We were not fully known and in our fullest identity without God going, you are my creation. And so the first thing that Jesus does is not yell at Thomas for not believing, but actually says, you have a right to know and understand the way you need to know and understand. Let me repeat that. You have a right, child, to know and understand the way you need to know and understand. That rings true today. 
And Jesus said, put your hands in my, in my wounds. And Jesus breathed life on them. Why? Why is this akin to the Genesis 2 breathing? Because they were probably terrified and in total trauma in this moment. And if you know anything like hiding in a real locked room or a figurative locked room, terrified of powers that are bigger than you, friends, you know what it's like to lose your breath. You know what it's like somatically for your body to be so scared of what's happening to you right now that you are literally out of breath. And the first thing that the God of sustenance does in this moment is not make a theological point, but breathes a reminder of centering, beauty, affirmation, validation into these terrified men locked behind a a locked door, (laughs) hiding behind a locked door. So the first thing is, Our God is not a God who flexes on the powers of empire. Our God is a God who wants to speak to us in community and individually as a breath of affirmation, sibling. As an exhale of all of your beauty and your divinity. To fill your lungs and to fill your heart with the divinity that God has ordained you with since the beginning of creation. Number two, Jesus showed up with wounds, y'all. A question that we really need to wrestle with is what do we think? And even including what were we told heaven is? And when we imagine heaven, in fact, you feel free to in the chat answer what, hey, this is what I thought heaven was going to be. But we were told that heaven was going to be the erasure, the eraser of all things that hurt and harm. Right. Revelation drawing off of uh, John 21 says that all tears will be wiped away. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. Friends, while I believe that there will be no crying and there will be no pain when we pass through the veil and we're together forever, um, I do believe also. I do believe also that the scar on my knee might still be there and that the wound, the parent wound that I've carried for now 37 years might still take some time to be figured out in the eschaton, in, in, in heaven, in the, in, the, in the place to come. Because Jesus, if you're going to resurrect yourself the way I would resurrect myself, You do not know the muscles that would be showing on my body, the skin that would be just absolutely shining. My teeth, you know, like I I would be the most vain person coming back resurrected to let y'all know that I was ultimately right. Like what are the things that we think we're going to idealize about our body and our character that maybe we need to put to the side and maybe hit a pause on because Jesus showed up with wounds. While the Bible doesn't say the wound hurt or didn't hurt, it doesn't really matter because the wound was still present on Jesus, meaning the effects of this world still carried on his body and yet were redeemed in the resurrection. And that if you've been promised a conquering, defeating Jesus that will take away all of the things that you hurt from, if you're sitting here right now, friends, 
I promise you that has not healed your wounds because that's not how resurrection works. That's also not how God's divinity and God's presence in us and around us works. What is true is that we all carry wounds, both wounder and wounded, both oppressor and oppressed. All of the ways that we fashion our lives make us inextricably connected. And there are layers of oppression that we sometimes lean into and try to lean out of. But nevertheless, we are a people of wounds. And if we imagined that God would come or if we were told by someone like me in a position like me that God would come and take away all those wounds and just make our life better, we probably added a wound, a religious trauma bond to our experience. Because if you, friend, have been in a wound, you know that God doesn't just wipe it, nor should God. That's not the point, friends. That's not the point. And I'll say this, as human as I can, I want God to take away all my wounds. I want all my wounds to be, I want to be blemishless in life. And I pray that sometimes too. But what I really know I need is a God who sits with me in my wounding and points to my wounds and invites me to be redeemed despite that wound, in light of that wound, regardless of that wound. And maybe even stronger friends, because of that wound, I am redeemed. Because of that wound, I am redeemed and you are redeemed. I'm not compelled by the doubting Thomas and letting that be a story that we don't become the doubting Thomas. Right now, in this very moment, I am a doubting Thomas, and I'm not embarrassed about that. I don't even want to call Thomas the doubter. I want to call Thomas the scientist, as Camille uh, uh, dealt with it, because every way that we engage God is through our own experiences and the ways that we need to be affirmed and validated. And I believe God goes, yeah, okay, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. Oh, this is what you need? Okay, I, 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 can, I can talk to you in that way. Because God is not trying to conquer your experience. God is trying to stand next to, parallel with, and suffer with your experience and my experience. And through that mutual suffering, we become community. So why will I always, always, always talk about common ground? I am not self-plugging. I am not pushing common ground. I promise you, I am not. I am a terrible, terrible evangelist. I don't tell anybody about common ground. People show up here on their own volition. The reason I will always talk about common ground, though, is because if we can become a place that has wounds and we can all acknowledge and affirm and see our wounds and not mute them in the name of Jesus, but validate them and hold them in the name of Jesus and travel together through our woundedness, we will shine the light, the radiant light of Jesus Christ that was shown in that room, that upper room that day. And we will find peace. Chris on his own, signing up for a whole bunch of mess. Chris in accountable, vulnerable community with y'all and others, a place where I can bring my wounds. And a place that through you and your face and your experience, I can hear and see where God is. Because may we be a place where actually we show our wound to God 
And God says, you are fully divine with that wound. I didn't say I'm going to take it away. I'm going to sit there with you. We're going to work on it. We're going to work on it for life. And you might even carry that scar into heaven, but we're going to work on it. And you're going to have people around you who testify to that work, to that life, to that grind of togetherness that brings us peace, like the peace in the upper room, and brings us validation like the way God validated Thomas because of how Thomas needed to see God. Friends, let God breathe into you rest and peace and courage, security and safety. And may we, from a safe distance, figuratively speaking, breathe that out on one another (laughs) until we heal together from the wounds that God sees and stands with and cares about. Because in that, we will be a community that resurrects ourselves and that shines Jesus. And in that, we won't care who believes in what here. We'll just care about who has wounds, all of us, and how we might be friends to one another. That is the essence of Christian community. And that was the first and last thing Jesus did after the resurrection. I think it has resonance to who we are today. Amen.